Well, welcome to Cornerstone. I, uh, I'm really excited to be here with you all. This is uh, it's actually my first time with you guys. Sundays are usually a busy day for me, so <coughs> stuff to get over here in the morning, but really grateful to be with you. Uh, as Blake said, my name is Ryan Dugan. I'm the young adult director at Christ the King. I've been there for a little over nine years, I think, uh, which is a long time. Um, but yeah, happy to be with you this morning. Happy to worship with you. It's a great joy. Uh, so from what I understand, uh, you start off this time speaking to the kiddos for a moment. So I'd like to, in turn, follow that trend. So kids, students, I want to tell you a little bit about what we're talking about today. Um, but first, I'll tell you a little bit more about who I am. Um, so I grew up doing lots of different stuff. I actually was in plays. I was in a musical once. I had one singing line, which I think was so horrifying they never let me do it again. Um, <coughs> I was in band for a long time. I was a trepeteer. Until there was a conflict of loves between band and football. And I started playing football uh, really early and often. In fact, got to play in college a little bit, which was crazy. It's Division Three, which if you don't know, it's super small. It's basically high school plus. There's probably some Texas football teams, high school teams that could beat us. But uh, nonetheless, I played in college. And here's what I learned about all those different things, being in plays or being in the band or getting to play on sports teams, is that it's really important to know what team you're on and what your role is. To know what team you're on and what your role is. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. It's kind of a refocus from, <coughs> um, from, from the Gospel of Luke. Of who we are and what our role is. And what I want you to hear, there's two things I want you to hear. The first is your gods. Your gods. And that can never be taken away. Because he loves you and he's faithful to you. The second is, no matter how old you are right now in this room, you have a role. You have a very important role. In fact, God in his divine wisdom has chosen you to be the person who bears light and witness to his good news to all the people around you. So I don't care if you're four, if you're five, if you're six or 89, this is God's call in your life. All right, let's read our passage together um, <clears throat> and get started. Cool? Great. This is Luke chapter 10. You have 1 through 24 printed, but we're going to read uh, 1 through 12 and then skip down to 17 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, and I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then down to verse 17. 
the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Will you pray with me for a moment? Father, I am grateful this morning to be with these people, with these brothers and sisters in your name, and with I share your salvation and your true hope of resurrection and reunion and future glory. I do pray this morning that you would allow me to speak uh, the words of truth, that you, Jesus, would be glorified and lifted up high as you deserve. And uh, I pray that you would convict my heart and those hearts that are in this room to follow you faithfully and obediently, no matter the cost. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The main question I want us to kind of ask ourselves this morning is, what is God's mission? What does God's mission for His people look like? So if you look at verses, or chapter two, or excuse me, chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, the opening verses of this chapter speak about ordinary people being sent out with Christ's instruction. Ordinary people. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out His 12 disciples. The big names, Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and so on. These were the, the soon-to-become fathers of the faith, the public, the well-known, the well-remembered heroes from the beginning. But then here in chapter 10, we see Jesus sending the second wave of his followers, the unnamed, ordinary 72. And like any good leader, Jesus provides a motivational speech. So like Herb Brooks looking at the young Americans before facing off against the Soviets in the 80s Olympics and the hockey team, he says, great moments are born with great opportunities. Like the Bass Brothers from the Mighty Ducks before they go onto the ice. I know two hockey things. We don't play hockey, but follow me. As the Bass Brothers say, ducks fly together. Or like Ryder, kids, whenever someone needs help and he says, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, we'll be there on the double. Jesus offers a motivational call, call to arms. He focuses his squad on the core of the mission. Look what he says in verse 2. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Notice here whose harvest it is. It is his harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who's going and preparing the seed, who nurtures the seed, who waters the seed, who sends the laborers to then go get the harvest. It is His harvest, His mission. So what does God's mission look like? The first thing we see is that it looks like ordinary people answering the call of an extraordinary God. What does your role as a Christian look like? It looks like ordinary people answering the call of an extraordinary God. On May 17, 1961, <clears throat> President JFK met with the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa, Canada, and, and gave a speech that many historians would say set the tone for Canadian and United States relationships to this day. This is what set the tone for it. It was during the time of the Cold War, so there was lots of conflict between the West, the East, communism and democracy. And so his speech addressed a lot of things, especially those 
But he ended by saying this, the free world's cause is strengthened because it is just. But it is strengthened even more by the dedicated efforts of free men and free nations. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil in your unbelieving friend's life is for good men and women to do nothing. Could it be that our hesitation to answer the call of God, our timidity to answer His call, to act, to love, to serve, to bring the good news to bear on the lives of those around us is what is allowing evil to reign in their lives still. This is a difficult statement for us good Presbyterians to hear. Why is that? Because we're good Presbyterians. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in what is true. That is, that we are saved as a gift by grace through faith, both of which are a gift from God. Both the grace received for salvation and the faith to believe. Those are both gifts from the Lord. It's true that you and I are no more capable of bench-pressing an elephant as we are to change the hearts of men and women to love Jesus. We don't have the strength. We don't have the might. No speech. No wit. No mechanic. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring dead men and women to life. Period. It's not your work. It's not mine. But here's what's also true. God in His divine wisdom has chosen you, Christian, to be the light to the world. To bring the good news. You, Christian, little Christs are His representation. As Paul writes, how will those who do not believe know who Christ is if no one tells them about who Christ is? And how will they hear of who He is if no one shares that good news? How will the good news be preached if no one answers the call? If no one goes forth, if no one acts, we have to answer the call. See, what does God's mission look like? The mission of God looks like ordinary people answering the call. And this is the beautiful news of it. It's ordinary people. There's no superlative necessary. You don't have to be the prettiest. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the funniest. You don't have to be fill in the blank to be faithful. God calls the ordinary to do amazing things because He is extraordinary. And why is that? Remember, verse 1, He sends you where He's already going. He sends you where He's already at work. In verse 2, it is His harvest. He sends the 72 out, and we think of words from Isaiah the prophet, maybe in 41.10. He sends them out knowing they know that He is with them, strengthening them, upholding them, helping them. He sends you and I out. He strengthens us. He helps us. He upholds us with His righteous right hand for His ministry to rescue His sheep. So what's the first step to answer the call? What does it look like to actually answer this? Look at verse 2. This is really fascinating. The harvest is plenty and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Did you all expect that? (laughs) The harvest is uh, large. The laborers are few. So go out and do a bunch of stuff now. It's up to you and you alone. No, he says, pray and pray earnestly. 
Submit yourself to him, knowing that this is his work. Pray earnestly, and what do we pray for? That he sends laborers out. So there is prayer and there is action. So here's my first kind of question of application for you. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Who are those in your life that don't know him? Who are those that do and are in dark places of work? In other words, do you have friends and family that are working around folks or living near people who don't know the good news of Jesus? Are you praying for them? Are you praying for the laborers? Are we praying for our fellow churches? Are we praying for those who are lost? And secondly, I wonder, who might God be sending you to? Have you ever considered that He has you exactly where you are, in your house, on your street, in your workplace, for the sake of someone else? Not just to make an ends, not just to make ends meet, not just to get in a good school zone, but to actually bring the good news of Christ to bear in the people around you. So the first part of God's mission is for us to answer the call through prayer and through action. <clears throat> well, Ryan, what does that action actually what does it really look like? What's the context of this movement? Well, that's a great question to ask. Let's keep going. Let's reread verses three through twelve. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, you, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from, from house to house. Whenever you enter a town... And they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, and I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So what's going on? Jesus is sending these 72 out two by two. He doesn't send them alone. He sends them with a friend. Now part of this is because they're actually fulfilling the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, which says that you have to have two witnesses for a claim to be legitimate in the courts. He also doesn't send them alone because we were never meant to do the mission of God alone. It was meant to be done in community. And notice in verse 3 what he says, this sending is like, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. Now, there's two messages to this. The first is, uh, I'm not sure if you've watched Discovery Channel very often, but when you put lamb among wolves, uh, it doesn't tend to go super well. There's teeth and claws and a lot of bang, and it's bad. In other words, there's pain. Jesus isn't, he's not sugarcoating it. He's not baiting and switching the 72. I'm sending you out as lamb among wolves. You will face pain. You will face trial. And the second message is this. It's meant to communicate that the power of God's kingdom would be expressed in a completely different way than that of the kingdoms of the world. In other words, where tribes and empires and other religions would expand through brute power and through violence, God's kingdom would be spread through peace where some might pick up the sword to broaden the reach of their religious convictions, he tells us to lay down our sword and to pick up our cross. 
to serve, to sacrifice for the sake of other people. The mission of God's people is to give away themselves for the sake of others. To show the type of love and sacrifice that Christ has given us. We love as we were loved. And as a short aside, this is a really important thing. Christianity, this quality of Christianity is unique. This principle that the genuine religious conviction cannot come or be compelled by force. It's actually a clear contrast with significant segments of Islam and Hinduism and other, other tribal religions. Christianity is unique in that the gospel is spread through our service, not our violence. Let's keep going. In verse 4, he tells them to carry no money bag, carry no knapsack, carry no extra sandals. They were meant to go out with their friend into hostile territory with nothing but the good news of Jesus. They had to be completely and utterly dependent upon his provision in hard places. Some of which, in verses 5 through 7, would actually welcome them. Others, in verses 8 through 12, would not. They would reject him, reject them and the message of Christ. So these ordinary people were being sent out two by two in hostile territory with nothing but the good news of Christ's kingdom. And they would absolutely, in verse 8, be met with trouble. Sign me up. What does the mission of God look like? It looks like ordinary people answering the call of an extraordinary God. But the mission of God also looks like trusting in God's provision through difficult and painful moments. I uh, just got back from this Southeast Asia like two nights ago. I've never experienced jet lag before, but I have now. Um, <laughs> so I'm a little tired. Uh, one of the benefits of 40 hours on the plane, that's true, it's 40 hours. That's a lot of time. Is you get to watch a lot of movies. Uh, especially when you're tall like me and the seat is right up in your knees. That's kind of the only thing to distract you. And I happened upon, uh, maybe some Harry Potter fans out there, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And there's the main character, Newt Scamander. <clears throat> He's got this suitcase full of mythical creatures and magic creatures and they get loose. And there's a really interesting scene where he's trying to compose his non-magic friend, nomad, as they call them, muggles if you're British. And he tries, he tries to calm him before they go and capture this huge rhinoceros-looking magical creature. And he looks at his friend and says, are you worried? Don't, there's nothing to be worried about. And the friend says, has that ever worked before? And Newt looks to him and says, my philosophy is that worry means you just suffer twice. Worry means you suffer twice. And I was really compelled by this quote. Here's the reason why. We worry, I think, I think we worry because we suppose that pain and difficulty will not actually come our way. We assume that things will go well. And so we worry about the possible pain that will come. Instead of realizing that the testimony of the Scriptures is that the road of following Jesus is not an easy road. It is not a simple road to pick up your cross and to follow Him. John 15 says, this is Jesus, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. And James 1, count it all joy when trials come. When, not if, when. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also that you should suffer 
for his sake. In John 16.33, from the words of Christ, in this world you will find trouble. Half of the pain, I think, for a lot of us is not just what happens, but that we're surprised it's happening at all. And the testimony of the Scripture is that to follow Jesus is not an easy path. Let's be clear. It is the only path to life. It is the only path to peace. It is the only path to a sure hope and sure victory. This Christ is the author of all those things, but it is not a path that's meant to be easy. As I was in Southeast Asia, I was talking to pastors who are local there who are planting churches and spreading the gospel illegally. It's a dangerous place for them to be. Just a couple years ago, one of the pastors, not in their group, but a church down the road, was abducted to never be seen again. It's against the law for the people who attend their church to attend their church. As I sat across the table and just asked some questions about what's their experience as being a Christian in this area, they said this, you know, we're reminded every day that we're living in Babylon. That we're exiles, living in a land that's not really our home. Perhaps part of the struggle for the American church is we still think we live in Jerusalem. We still suppose it's meant to be easy. And I want to be clear, just as Scripture is clear, it's not going to be easy. Friends, that would be a sorry excuse of a preacher if I didn't tell you the truth. And the truth is, there's a lot of us in this room that are deceived about what God's call has been in our lives. It's not a life of comfort. It's not a life of freedom to do whatever I want to do. The life of a Christian will necessarily follow the life of his or her Savior, which is life of suffering. But it's also a life of real hope in that suffering. There are some of us in this room that are scared of what God might be calling us to. Suffering does not sound fun because it's not. And I want to remind you that the one who calls you into the suffering is the one who has suffered. The one who is with you in your suffering, who walks through the valley with you. He will not despise you. He will not forsake you. Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote in one of his series on his own depression and emotional low. He said, oh, you of little love, you of little faith, God does not despise you. The Father draws near the feeble saint. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that God is with you. To follow the path of Christ, to give our lives over to Him, is to suffer and to serve in the same ways that He has suffered and served for our sake. But as any good leader would, He's not doing anything, He's not asking us anything He hasn't already done above and beyond more than we are going to do. There are some of you in this room, too, that are still asking yourselves is it worth it? Is He worth following? So God's mission looks like ordinary people answering the call through prayer and through action. It looks like trusting in His help, His provision, especially during difficulty. But why do we trust Him during these difficult times? Let's read 17-20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given You authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. 
and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's going on? The 72 went out, they come back, and they have really good news. Things went well. We're, we're overjoyed. Listen, the demons are subject to your name, Jesus. They found victory, and Jesus affirms this. He says, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. His defeat was abrupt. It was violent. You guys did it. And then he says something really strange in verse 20. Do not rejoice in these things. Do not rejoice in the victories you saw. Do not rejoice in your success in ministry. Do not rejoice in what he says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that the enemy is defeated and we found success, that through your labor the gospel moves forward. The call is not to be stoic. The call is not to be unemotional. Rather, what he's saying here is that our celebration, our joy from having our names written in heaven is far superior than the successes we find in life. Our joy from receiving salvation ought to dwarf the joy that comes from successes in our lives and ministry. Our mission as God's people is rooted in the gift of His salvation. It all starts from there. Like Ephesians 4 says, we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. The only way we know how to, the only reason we do it all, move forward in service of other people is because we see and have experienced God's love and faithfulness to us first. We rejoice primarily in the fact that He has given us salvation. When I was in college, I uh, stayed with my buddy Mike Dozman, who lived in uh, East Olive, Michigan. It's a town of like 600 people. And I was there for like two or three weeks. And I really wanted to help out around the house because they were letting me have kind of a free place to stay. And they had this huge kind of uh, large amount of acreage, huge plot of land to mow. And so I said, hey, I'll mow. Let me do it. Hopped on a tractor and started mowing the lawn. Now here's a little confession. I, I'm not good at mowing lawns. <clears throat> In fact, my dad would tell you growing up, I, like, I broke about six lawnmowers, uh, sometimes intentionally, um, to get out of mowing. But not this time. So I, I got on the tractor and I started to mow. And in my mind, I thought to myself, all I need to do is get every, every blade of grass cut and I have mowed the lawn. Now, if you know how to mow grass, you already know that's a huge mistake. Because here's what happened. I started doing figure eights. And they're like four acres. <laughs> Somebody just sighed. I did figure eights in the front of their four-acred land, front yard. Uh, I was almost done. There was one little patch in the middle. I kept doing figure eight, figure eight. And I saw Papa Dozman walk outside. He's waving his arms. I thought he was just saying hi. So I waved back. And I keep going. And I finally got the patch of grass, not realizing that I had just ruined their lawn. So for the next two or three months, all they saw were figure eight designs randomly in their huge front yard. Now, what did I learn that day? Well, straight lines are better. That's what I learned. I also learned in order to make a straight line, <clears throat> I had to focus my sight on something ahead. I had to maintain focus on something far beyond, on something on the other side of the field. That was what would keep me straight, what would keep me on the path I needed to go. What I want to tell you this morning is that our fence post 
Our aim in life must be rooted in the salvation that Christ has given us. Where do you turn for rest and hope in Christ's salvation? Where do you turn for motivation to love your neighbor in Christ's salvation and His sacrifice? Nothing can stand against you. How, do you. how do you face the difficult moments we just talked about that are going to come? We rest in Christ's salvation. No trial can separate you from the love of God. No enemy can separate you from the love of God. No feebleness, no weakness, no sin in your life can separate you from the love of God as He's captured you in salvation. Nothing can. Everything starts with this, people. Everything starts. God blessed Abraham, and a natural consequence of Abraham's blessing was that he started blessing other people. Your mission in life, a natural consequence of the love you receive from Christ, is then to go love people. What drives you? This is the last application. What drives you? What motivates you to go do the things you do? I think what God does for us here in the last few verses is he gives us a moment to stop and put aside likely most of our natural inclination, which is to rest in my own success, to rest in my own ability, to rest in how good I am at doing whatever it is that you do, but instead he tells us to rest in this fact that he loves us, that he's made a way for you, that in His death and His resurrection, His faithfulness to you, He has offered you new life. So what drives you to do the things you do? If it's not the freedom you receive, how can it be anything other than the freedom you received in knowing that you're okay because of Christ's work? That you're good because of His resurrection? So what does the mission of God look like for His people? Friends, it looks like we answer the call. It looks like every day we pray earnestly for the mission of God to move forward, for the gospel to be moved in the places of unreached people in our city, in our state, in our country, and beyond. It looks like understanding and embracing the reality that this is not going to be an easy thing. You are going to face trial. You are going to face setback. You are going to face the wolves, but you do not do it alone. You do it with His church, and you do it with Him. And lastly, in the moments that seem dire, in the moments where you're weak, we remember and we rest in the fact that Christ is for you, that Christ sustains you, and that Christ loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and for these friends and for a chance again to be in Your Word. I do pray that You would help me and help all of those in this room to hold fast to what we've talked about this morning. To hold fast to You, Lord Jesus. Because You are our Rescuer. You are our Savior. You are our friend. I pray that You would give us strength to endure. Strength and confidence to be bold with the Gospel. Both of the way that we live and serve the people around us, but also with the things that we say. I pray this week, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes and ears to see those in our lives that need to hear the good news of your hope most dearly. And I pray as your church that we would remind one another and encourage one another in these efforts. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to you 
because it is you that give us this sure hope. And it's your name that we pray. Amen.